Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Welcome to the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor of Pitchfork, and I'm here with our staff writer, Alphonse Pierre. What's up? And contributing writer, Sheldon Pierce. Hello, hello. So today we're going to be talking about Brooklyn Drill, which is basically the biggest sound in rap right now. And one of the scene's most prominent artists, Pop Smoke, who tragically passed away earlier this year. We'll get into Pop Smoke's rise and the release of his new album. And we'll go a little bit deeper into the evolution of drill music and the police surveillance that went along with it. There's a lot to cover here, but let's start with the resurgence of Pop Smoke's Dior, which we've heard playing at protests in this really fun and joyous way. Al, you wrote a great piece about the song. Could you kind of explain what you've seen happen with Dior over the last few months? Yeah, there's been like quite a few Brooklyn Drill songs that have been playing at the protests, but the main one has been Pop Smoke's Dior. Dior is one of those songs that people like could gather around and unite around, like even if it's about him buying a bunch of clothes, even if it's about him just hanging out with his friends. It's really like deeper than that. I remember when I first heard the leak of Dior was first called Mike Amiri. Because in the chorus, he just goes Mike Amiri, Mike Amiri, talking about like the the worst fashion brand, but <laughs> talking about that fashion brand. And he pr- it's pretty much just him repeating that over that instrumental with that voice. It's just like a perfect blend. That deep bass and the sort of darkness of the production sort of mixed with like this like severeness of his voice. It's just like <laughs> it presses right up against you. It's like it feels like it's forcing you up against the wall. It feels like a, a cold gust of wind like right up on you. It's like, oh, shit. It blows you back. Movement is like literally embedded in the way that the song is written. And he's like, shake it, shake it, shake it. She like the way that I dance. She like the way that I move. It's like the groove is built into the, into both the song and the lyrics. It's like you're getting it twice over. And then here's this guy. He sounds like fucking Bane ready to storm Gotham City. <laughs> and he's just right up on you. It's just incredible. It's, it's, you can't deny it. It's undeniable. Now I'm just like, let's go. Like, let's party. It's really the most chantable, recitable pop smoke song. And I feel that's part of what has made it such like an easy transition into the protest movement. Is there something about just like the style of the song that you think makes it so catchy? Why is it something that people want to be playing and like want to party to or like rally around? I know for me, Dior brings me back to a time where I wasn't thinking about pain and police brutality 24-7. 
even if you take it back to last summer, like July 2019, when Dior was pretty much everywhere, it's a song that you would hear playing out of car windows, playing off the roofs, playing at parties, playing when you're just sitting down chilling. And it, it like brings you back to like that time. It's so funny to think about nostalgia as 10 months ago. <laughs> like- <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> Any music that was released before the pandemic feels like it, it happened a decade ago. But it was interesting because Pop Smoke is still some of the only music that feels present. And I think that's yeah. part of the reason why it has been lingering in this moment. Yeah. Even like thinking about Dior, like you could really like imagine what Pop Smoke's day was probably like when he made that song. Like probably hopped in the car with his friends from Canarsie, probably drove to Soho, like <laughs> took the BQE, probably, probably double parked somewhere. And it, it, probably just like smoking out the window, like on the highway, people are beeping at him. And like, that's just like the type of energy that like any New York kid wants to be on. Like, they don't want to be thinking about like the police harassing them. They don't want to be thinking about yeah. like, like everything that's going on in the neighborhood. They just want to like chill, like cop some clothes. And that's what Dior is, you know? And the music, it feels so good. You can feel it in your chest. And I think it being chantable really goes a long way towards its sort of power and protest. And it really just does go off live. It's like it's in the air. You feel it. You feel that shit, man. Yeah. There's nothing like it. So I think that really speaks to why it's sort of touching people as they go out into the streets, as they fight police brutality and and fight for police reform, especially given his role as this figure who has been antagonized by the police almost his entire career. And that kind of surveillance is just part of being a Black artist in the rap community, especially for drill music. Yeah, so let's talk about the origins of drill music for those who don't know what it is exactly. Yeah, Chicago drill is sort of specific focus on like insane sort of hi-hat rippling beats drill sort of picked up this mantle for like aggressive hard-hitting street music it sounded almost like a world all to its own which sort of speaks to the these young kids in chicago taking this music and flipping it um to soundtrack the violence that was happening in their city in songs like, I mean, Chief Keef's like, I, d- I don't like. Little Reese, Us. Um, Katie Got Bands, Pop Out. There's just like, sort of this intensity to the music that was emblematic of a lot of the sort of turf war shit that was happening on Chicago's South Side. Yeah, it's 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 them in their own words, their own voices, talking about their neighborhoods, talking about everything that's intertwined in it, whether it be gang culture, whether it be just something that's happening on their block, whether it be their day to day. And so that's what they were influenced by. And so in the mid 2010s, like New York rap started to sound like Chicago rap. And at first, it was pretty blatant. It was a pretty blatant ripoff. Like, the beats were pretty much just blatant copies of DJL beats or Young Chop beats or DJ Ken beats. Yeah, these songs sort of, like, they sound good, but they don't sound like Brooklyn yet. Right. 
But that began to change around late 2016, early 2017. I think the first like official big Brooklyn Driller record is Two Two Jesus Suburban. And that song is different in that it's it's a song produced by this London producer named Axel Beats. Even though he's still like indebted to that Chicago style, he kind of brought in like this new flavor. And in t- with Two Two Jesus flow, he also brings in something like that Brooklyn swag that has to be in Brooklyn music. It's like you hear it, you hear it immediately in in the swagger, in the slang, in the way that they talk, and in the things that they choose to talk about. It just becomes so obvious that these kids are from Brooklyn and they're speaking to other Brooklyn kids specifically. And that is when the music really starts to take on this authentic tone and really starts to be true to the city itself. That song was the first record to take off in Brooklyn as a Brooklyn drill record. And then it elevates when Chef G comes around and drops a response to 2-2-G's suburban (laughs) record called no suburban. Also produced, produced by, by the same guy. <laughs> uh, one thing that's sort of interesting about Axel in particular is he's making these beats and then he sort of like establishes this unlikely connection with guys like 22G's and Chef G. So he intuitively is like, well, I'm just going to start naming my beats after them. So he starts making these <laughs> tight beats, but for rappers who aren't even on yet, he's like, yeah, this is a 22G's type beat. This is a <laughs> Chef G type beat. And then through that sort of process, he sort of builds this following in a city that he doesn't even live in. <laughs> Everybody around these young rappers who are picking up these Axel beats, they're like, oh, yeah, this shit sounds tight. And, they're, and right. they start to seek out Axel and other producers like him. Come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Alphonse, let's talk more about Pop Smoke's come up. What was the state of Brooklyn Drill when Pop Smoke came on the scene? So in Brooklyn, all it really takes is just like one song, one moment, and all of a sudden you're like popping throughout the borough. <laughs> yeah. Like, and that's pretty much all it took. And there was definitely like a need for like a breath of fresh air in the scene. And so toward the end of 2018, he drops a remix of a Chef G song called NPR's remix of Chef G's Panic Part 3. And that drops at the, in the winter of 2018 at the end of the year. And then mm-hmm. he drops another song, Flexing, and then it really takes off after that. And he becomes a sensation like in the borough. And his first single is leaked. Well, the first like 
big leak to be passed around was Welcome to the Party. But Welcome to the Party just felt like this huge thunderous just moment. Like it had this like vocal sample in the background. And I think that was where the UK drill elements really like start to come in on that AOA mellow beat there because it doesn't really sound like any of those other previous records we were talking about before. Yeah, it's it's deeper. It's 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 darker. It's way darker, and it's it feels weird to say that because the early songs are are dark too. But it it definitely just like feels like he's walking through like a swirling maelstrom on that song. But the craziest thing about it is it is a dance song. Like just like I said, <laughs> it's a record you could dance to. So there's like there's sort of this weird disconnect between what the song does to your body and like what the song is doing in its sound and its vibe and its energy, what you're hearing. And it's like, Oh, well, fuck this. This guy is wild. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just that sinister sort of energy that really, it feels fucking provocative in a way. And it's crazy. The one lyric that really got me was, Bitch, I'm a thought, get me lit. And once you hear that, you're like, bro, like, what are you saying? Like, like, what are you talking about? I mean, you hear it, it's like, yeah, you know what? I am a thought. Yeah, yeah. get me lit, but, yeah. But, but when he says it, you're like, okay, I get it. I know I know what you're talking about. Like, like, like he's joking, but he's also dead. And then you're like, yeah, I see. What's the mainstreaming of Pop Smoke? When did that happen? After Dior comes out in the spring of 2019, that follows Welcome to the Party, it sort of just starts to build very quickly. And I think once he drops in July, Meet the Woo, his first mixtape, everything just starts to like go on fire. Everybody wanted like a piece of Pop Smoke. Yeah, I think it really sort of started to pick up steam outside of New York in summer of 2019, going into fall of 2019. And then you start to see this renewed interest in drill music after Drake mates war. Drake is sort of an arbiter of taste for a lot of people in the rap community, sadly. Um, (laughs) And so it's like once Drake sort of like spotlights this given moment, a lot of people are liable to start paying attention, but so are the police, because as all this is going on, the MIPD have been watching the scene grow in Brooklyn, and they have increased their presence around the shows and around neighborhoods. And this has, there's a long history of NYPD aggression towards rappers and uh, the crews that they hang out with. In 1999, the rap intel unit known as the Hip Hop Cops, a branch of the NYPD's gang intelligence unit was created. um, And they were keeping tabs on rappers with files on guys like Jay-Z and Cameron and even 50 Cent. And this continued on into the mid-2010s when 15 members of the GS9 crew, which was uh, fronted by the rapper Bobby Shmurda, who is sort of a proto-BK drill rapper, were indicted as a street gang. And then fast forward to the present, the NYPD sent a letter to the Rolling Loud Festival asking them to remove five local drill artists from the bill 
uh, 22G's Casanova, Pop Smoke, Chef G, and Don Q. And I think the specific line they used was they believed that if those individuals were allowed to perform, then there will be a higher risk of violence. Like collecting, basically saying specifically that these guys being at this show means that people are going to be violent, uh, creating a direct connection between the rap music and the violence. And then you see in like prototypical drill rapper like Chief Keef, uh, he's still has trouble performing in Chicago. They wouldn't even let him use a, a hologram to perform in Chicago for fear <laughs> that his music Jesus. incites violence. So you see this sort of direct connection being made by law enforcement with violence in the rap community and sort of using that as an excuse to over-police not just rappers, but the communities that are uh, they come from, essentially. Yeah, so another aspect of that is that Pop Smoke never actually got to perform at his hometown at all because of how heavily they police this community. And he actually ends up moving to L.A. where he was tragically killed in a home invasion earlier this year. I remember how down the office was that day. Al, do you remember where you were when Pop Smoke died? I, I remember just like, I think I had just gotten to work at the Pitchfork office. And that was pretty much like the first thing I saw. And I remember just, I, I like almost didn't know how to react. It didn't feel real. You were just like constantly double checking it. It was just like deflating. It felt like, like why? Like how, how did this happen? How could it happen? Like, where could he have been? Like, he was, it was just like a one of a kind, just like moment that you just didn't want to believe was real. Yeah, you you just see sort of the entire movement just, just collapse around him. Rappers he was close to and rappers who he wasn't close to just sort of being like, oh, this was one of us. This was one of our guys. We lost one of our guys. Just a lot of people have sort of recognized his his potential, but also recognized the legacy that he has already left behind and sort of doing their best to be caretakers for that legacy going forward and trying to make sure that this doesn't stop the rest of the drill movement, that the drill movement continues. It already feels like Pop Smoke is eternal. Like after this moment, just the way that his music is living with people, it feels like he is eternal. So there was obviously a ton of expectation for this album, even though posthumous albums can be kind of weird implicitly. How did that land? Al, how do you feel about the album now that it's out? Yeah, I feel like the album, it was just like a hard to win situation. The expectations were so heavy in that it was basically a debut album. So it's Pop Smoke's like introduction to like the mainstream world. And it's also supposed to be like this final moment. And also on the drill side, it's a moment that almost like justifies everything the subgenre has been building to. And it's also supposed to progress it into like its next sound or its next version. And by being all of that, it almost gets conflated. (coughs) There are like some traditional drill songs. You have like 44 Bulldog. That song mm-hmm. could be on Meet the Woo or Meet the Woo 2. That's a great song. Yeah, it's a, it's a great song. I think, it, I think it's one of the best songs he's made since that first mixtape. Yeah. And then you'll have a song like Aim for the Moon, which has five or six producers on it. It's like 
it's 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 made almost like an Astro World song. It's like Wonder Girl and all these uh, other co-producers that add all their signature touches in there. You have Pop Smoke almost crooning like Travis Scott. And it's it's really like a weird balance that the album tries to catch in that there's this idea that for an album to be big and glossy, that it has to sound a certain way. And Pop Smoke's music just never sounded like that. Well, can you run down who's on the album, actually? Because it's kind of ridiculous. It's like a totally, um, a very expected but comical set. Basically, every major label rap album has like the same six features on it. <laughs> it's like, you've got Young Thug, you've got Future, you've got Roddy Rich, you've got Da Baby, you've got Little Baby. <laughs> it's like every major label album, they're like, they pull out yeah. the file. They're like, all right, we got to get these guys. It can't mm-hmm. be a major label album without these guys. And it's sort of like in direct conflict with the music that he was making prior. It's sort of interesting because you can only expect so much from legacy albums because they are tasked with doing something that is impossible. And the fact that it's his debut on top of that is this whole Mm -hmm. other thing. Mm -hmm. It's like you have to visualize his entire arc were he not to die. That's essentially the work of this album. And that one album could never measure up to the career, the life that this man was going to have. And so you are sort of trapped in this yeah. unbelievably difficult situation. And sort of listening to the record for me, it's like we talked previously about Brooklyn Drill being so distinctly New York and that being a feature of Pop Smoke's music. And this album is almost the exact opposite of that. It's like, how do we take all of the uh, distinctive characteristics of this guy's music and make them generic enough (laughs) for this album to move 200,000 streams streams, and go number one? Um, There's this moment where 50 Cent is like, yeah, he was uh, when he's drilling, he's drilling. But uh, on this album, he's making records, man. And it's uh, really separates yeah. him from the other guys in drill. I find this whole narrative to be sort of disparaging of drill. I don't like the implications of that. The implications of that are that drill music is not good enough. Like you have to transcend drill totally. music to become a great rapper. And that's bullshit. Exactly. It doesn't have to sound like that to show his versatility. Right. What I don't like is that they felt the need to sort of like build out this entire suite of those songs. There's, they're like, oh, yeah, here are four straight R&B samples back to back to back, right in a row. And it's like, OK, I get it. He can sing. We didn't need to do this, though. Like, not this way. Uh, there's just like there's something. So There's like a sort of desperation to the way that the album is sequenced where it's like feels there's such a need to prove that this guy could do it all. And I'm like, I I don't think that was necessary. I think he was already doing enough. Sheldon and Al, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks. The Pitchfork Review is hosted by me, Pooja Patel. Thanks to Sheldon Pierce and Alphonse Pierre for coming on the episode. You can follow Sheldon on Twitter at Jiggy Raps and Alphonse at Al underscore Pierre. You can follow Pitchfork on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pitchfork. This episode was produced by Jasmine Aguilera, Sharina Ong, and our executive producer, Alex Koppelman, with help from our assistant producer, Alex Jerome. Our original music is by Andrew Epen of Basement Crafts. 
The episode was mixed by Mark Phillips. Special thanks to Amy Phillips and Julie Shen. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.